Good morning. Well, obviously, I am not Pastor Adam. Uh, my name is Scott Stringer. I'm the, the director of our student ministries, and I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Adam is up at La, uh, La Plata Baptist Church this morning, uh, assisting them with an elder installation. So it's good to partner with our, our local churches. Uh, he and a couple of other local pastors are there as they, as they install a new elder there at, at La Plata. This morning, we're going to continue in our study in, uh, in Judges. We'll be in, in Judges 6. And uh, this morning's sermon is really a, this morning's text is really a look at, at preparation. Uh, and we'll look at how God prepares both uh, an individual and his people for what he's about to do through this man named Gideon. You know, we've all been through seasons of preparation in life. Uh, some of you are there right now. If you're a student in school, you're in a season of preparation. If you're on a sports team, perhaps you're, you're in preparation for the spring season. Spin mentioned the, the O's down in Florida getting ready for, uh, for the baseball season. They're in a season of preparation right now. So we've all been through seasons of, of preparation, and that's what we see in, uh, in Judges 6. Uh, personally, I happen to be in a, a season of preparation myself right now. At 42 years old, uh, I have, I'm in a, a new season getting ready for a, a big transition. It's a humbling place to be when, uh, with an established family, 20 years in running, and five children, one of whom is getting ready to go off to college. It seems an odd time to try to start over. And yet when the Lord calls, uh, as we'll see this morning, resistance is futile. So we're preparing to, to move to uh, Louisville, Kentucky this summer uh, after I finish up with the Navy. So I, I can attend Southern Seminary on campus there. And some might say it's, it's foolish to try to start over at this point in life. Um, but one thing I'm learning is that uh, the Lord will enable and the Lord will, uh, will bring to, to pass what he wants to do. And so today, as we look at Judges 6, uh, we'll see a man who's been called by God. But he has a tough time trusting God in that call. And I have a lot to learn from Gideon as, uh, as I, we study this text th this morning together. Uh, it's when, when Pastor Adam... Uh, asked me to preach. It was actually going to be on, on Judges 7, and then the snow happened, and so the, the schedule got a little scrambled a little bit, and so I ended up preaching, or I ended up with, uh, with Judges 6, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Adam's plan by any stretch. It was, it was the Holy Spirit who knew that I needed to spend some time studying with, with Gideon and understanding what it means to trust the Lord in his call, and so that's where we're going to go this morning. As we, as we walk through the text this morning, uh, I want us to look for four sort of movements through this text. We're going to see the the holiness, or I'm sorry, we're going to see the, the hopelessness of sin, and then we'll see the, the reluctance of a Savior. That's with a little s, Savior. We're going to see the holiness of the Savior. That's a capital S, Savior. And finally, we'll be assured of the faithfulness of God. And so join me with, the, with me in, in Judges 6. We'll read through the, uh, the entire text together, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig into it. Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. 
For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave, them, gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his faithful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a, a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth over them. And he did so. And the face of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel, of the, Lord, the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it, is, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abia's rites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants, and he did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the asher beside it was cut down and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? 
And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the, the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now the Midianites and all the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they all went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider your word, Lord, I pray your spirit would be in our midst, that you would move through your word and into our ears and our hearts, draw us near to you, Lord, and give us your assurance of your holiness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> so we see the cycle of judges repeating again. Let's catch up a little bit. Let's get the background. It's been a little bit of time. In Judges 4 and 5, we had seen Deborah and Barak bring, uh, bring salvation for Israel after they had, they had sinned, and then they had cried out to the Lord, and there was oppression. They cried out to the Lord, and God rose up the, pro, the, pro, the judge Deborah and Barak, and they defeated Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Israel had rest for 40 years. And so we see the cycle now continue again. In verse 1, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice, it doesn't say that they, sinned, they did evil again. It just sort of assumes, it seems to presume that they would, because that, that is the, the pattern that we've seen and will continue to see in Judges. But this time, the cycle repeats, but but it's worse this time. We see, we see the most detailed description of their of their the desolation and the oppression that come at the hand of the Midianites. They come in annually, every year for seven years, this countless force like locusts beyond number, leaving nothing behind, forcing Israel to go up into the, the hills and live in caves as they escape from the, the force of the Midianites. There seems to be no hope in Israel. Now, we can look at a, a map and, and see the, uh, the Valley of Jezreel up just south of the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and then all the way down to Gaza, that southernmost city on the, on the coast, all of Israel was, was taken over by the, 
the hand of Midian. All of it was, was taken over. And Gideon is up there in Ophrah, this little town. We, we think it's somewhere up in the north side of Manasseh, maybe in, in Issachar. Um, but it's the Valley of Jezreel where most of the story of Gideon is going to take place. Israel is without hope. There's nowhere they can go other than the hills and the caves to, to escape from this judgment. And, the, and yet they don't see it necessarily as judgment. Uh, we see that Moses, God had told Israel in Leviticus, we can read it in chapter 26, when, when God kind of puts a, a book in on the end of his covenant with his people, he says, if you follow me, if you obey my laws, you will be blessed. And if you don't, the end of Leviticus 26 is a... Um, a very graphic description of what God will do in judgment over his people. And so we start to see that play out here. And again, in Deuteronomy 28, at the end of his sermon to Israel before they went into the promised land, Moses again warns Israel, if you don't follow the Lord, if he is not your true God, if you fail to, um, to follow his commandments, these are the things that are going to happen. And, and once again, it's a very graphic description in Deuteronomy 28. And we see even a parallel to this in the New Testament. Uh, and Paul's description of those who are apart from the promises of the gospel, we read last week in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's talking about those who are outside the, the covenant family of God. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of, the, of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's essentially where we see Israel here in Judges at the beginning of chapter 6, and that's really where we are apart from Christ, without hope. In verse 6, the people cry out to the Lord in their hopelessness. They're asking for help. We see their regret over their circumstances. What we don't see is repentance. We don't see a recognition in the fact that they have turned away from God. They turn to God for help, but there's no indication that they want to turn away from their idols, from their false gods, or to trust the Lord. How often... Do you regret your circumstances or perhaps the consequences of your actions, but you come short of perhaps confessing your sin and repenting of your sin, confessing to the one perhaps you've offended? Jesus doesn't call us to regret. He calls us to repent. And the, the difference, of course, is regretting is, is feeling bad about what's, what's happened or what you've done. Repenting is turning away from that sin, turning away from that offense, committing to walk in a new direction. And rather than the, the hero that Israel expects to see when they call out to the Lord, he, in this case, God, again, departs a little bit from the pattern we've seen so far in Judges, and God sends a prophet, an unnamed prophet, to remind Israel of the reason for their circumstances. He recounts the fact that God has brought them out of Egypt and that he has called them to be his people, and yet they have not obeyed him. God's graceful for sending them this sermon. 
He's preparing them for the salvation that he will bring about through Gideon. Sometimes we think that our circumstances need to change as well. We cry out for help looking for a change in our circumstances, and yet what God brings us is perhaps new insight through the, the faithful counsel of a brother or sister, through his word, and we, we begin to get some insight into the, maybe the reason for our circumstances. Maybe it's grounded in sin, and maybe it's just a season of preparation that we're in. Um, sometimes we don't get that until, until we have the hindsight of, of being through the circumstance. But in this case, Israel needed to hear the reason for their circumstance. They needed to hear that they were called to repent. Does God wait for them to repent before he begins to save them? He does not. And nor does he for us. That's, that's how he works. He brings about his relentless grace before we ever, we ever begin the process of repentance. In Romans 5.8, we read that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we enter the reluctant savior, Gideon. He's a farmer, the son of a Baal worshiper. And so God sends this messenger who meets him as he's threshing wheat in a wine press. This symbol of, of the oppression of, of Midian as he's doing what ought to be done on the threshing floor up in a, a high place on a, on a flat ground where the wind can blow away the chaff. He's, he's hiding in a wine press trying to, to keep Midian from coming and ste stealing what little bit of grain he may have. And the angel comes to him. Now, this angel, this messenger, we should... We should talk a little bit about his, his identity, because it's, it's a little bit confusing in the text if we follow who the text says is talking to him. It says the messenger says to him, and then in the next couple encounters, it's, it's the Lord himself, Yahweh, who's speaking to him. And even in Gideon's response to this messenger, the first time he addresses him, he calls him sir, and then the next time he addresses him, he calls him Lord Adonai. And then finally in verse 22, he addresses him as Lord God, Adonai Yahweh. And so Gideon grows in his understanding of who this is he's talking to, and we'll, we'll talk about his final conclusion here in a moment. But there's a good case to be made that, that this is actually God himself who has come in the flesh. This is pot potentially the Son of God who is standing there talking to Gideon. It doesn't say that clearly, but it's the Lord who's talking to him. The messenger greets Gideon as a mighty man of valor, which on the one hand is ironic considering his circumstances. He's hiding in this wine press. On the other hand, it's prophetic because God knows what Gideon is about to do through God's power. More important than these, this, this phrase, this mighty man of, of valor, is the next thing he says, and that's the Lord is with you. The word you there is singular. He's talking specifically to Gideon but despite this assurance that God is with him, Gideon doubts. He has multiple doubts. Gideon doubts the word of the Lord. He says, God is with you. The Lord is with you. And Gideon says, well, if the Lord's with us, why are all these things happening? He, he doubts his ability to do what God is telling him he's about to do. How can I do this? My family is the least in my tribe, and I'm the least in my family. And then he even doubts the very identity of this messenger. If you are who you say you are, show me this sign. 
Gideon knows the stories of God's deeds, but he doesn't apparently know the full story of God's promises for judgment. He doesn't understand the reason for what's happening, and apparently he didn't get the memo from the prophet who had just explained this to Israel just a few verses before. And so the Lord's grace is multiplied for Gideon. At each of these points of, of objection, God meets him with further assurance. In verse 14, do not I send you? In verse 16, I will be with you. And in verse 21, his offering is consumed with fire in a, in a sign that confirms the identity of who this is. And we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. Pastor Tim Keller points out here that all Gideon can see are the problems surrounding him. He doesn't see solutions. What he doesn't see is that God is calling him to be the solution to the problem. As a believer, God is with you. He has equipped you already. We'll read how God equips Gideon here shortly, but in Christ we have the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts that the Spirit of God gives to his children. Starting in verse 4, we read, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now notice these gifts that the Spirit gives to equip us are not for necessarily our personal good. They are for the common good. They are for the body of Christ. God may have equipped you to be the solution for the very challenge that someone else is praying for. God may be equipping you, he may have equipped you to be the solution for the very challenge that you're praying about. But we tend to want to solve things in our own strength or we, we don't see that there is a possible solution. We need to trust that the Lord is faithful in how he equips us and prepares us. The end of this encounter between Gideon and the messenger, we see this, it may seem strange to us, Gideon's response to what happens when the, the, the offering, this gift is, is engulfed in, in flame and the, and the messenger disappears. Gideon's response only makes sense when we have a clear understanding of the holiness of our Savior. The horror of his response, we might, we might even miss it. In, in the language there, when he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The clue there is in the Lord's response, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon knows he has been in the presence of the Lord. He has seen the Lord face to face, and his life is forfeit. He probably has Exodus thirty-three twenty in mind, where God tells Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. We don't often see God's holiness as we ought. We don't see how separate he is from the world. He, of course, he's omnipresent. He is everywhere in the world, and yet the world is not as he made it. it it's marred by sin, and we've, we've become accustomed to it. That, that otherness, that holiness of God we see in his word, we often are... It's dimmed to us. We need a, a fresh glimpse of God's beauty and his holiness. That's what books like Leviticus are for, actually. How many of you have 
had, had trouble reading through Leviticus before. In fact, if you're in, a, in a, uh, a chronological reading plan this year, you might be in Leviticus right now. In fact, that's, that's where I happen to be. And reading through Leviticus, this series of, of laws and regulations and offerings and ceremonies, and what is this all for? Why, do we, why, does God, why, does, why has he recorded this for us, especially in the, in the New Testament? It gives us a glimpse of the otherness, the set-apartness, the holiness of God. It's there to show us how holy God is. We need to be fearful before the Lord. It's because of that awe and reverence of the Lord that his grace becomes amazing. Commentator Dale Davis says that there's nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. There's nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. We should consider Isaiah's reaction to being in God's presence. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We can also reflect on, on Paul's words of, on the preeminence of Jesus in his letter to Col Colossae. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We should pray that the Lord would give you a renewed awareness of his holiness, of his glory, of his beauty. Look for his holiness as you read through his word. Look for his holiness even as you consider his creation. Worship him as only he deserves. Gideon recognizes this holiness, and he responds in worship. And he builds an altar, calling it, the Lord is peace. And we have this historical marker there, that this, this altar, in the time of those who read this to the original readers, it was still there as this marker of historical authenticity, that this story is true. God is gracious and promises Gideon peace and life. But immediately, God commands Gideon to take action on this worship. It doesn't just end with an ascent to God's holiness. That then leads into immediate action. And he commands Gideon to tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. The altar was on his father's property. This was what he had grown up with. This was his culture. 
God calls him to use this full-grown bull, and, ten, and he needed 10 men to do the work. This wasn't some little corner shrine in the living room. This was a huge task that needed to be done. And before we uh, judge Gideon for being too fearful, uh, obviously he was afraid of his father, and he was afraid of the men of the town, and he did it by night. But he did it. He obeyed, and he obeyed immediately. Now, the point here is that both altars, this altar that God has built, the Lord is peace, and this altar to Baal, they cannot coexist. There can be only one true God. In Exodus 20, verses 2 through 5, we read, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Matthew, of course, picked up on this in the Sermon on the Mount, reminding us that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What Gideon did, what God called him to do, prepares the people for what he's about to call Gideon to do for all of Israel. Jesus demands the same of us. We cannot cling to our old ways, our old idols, and claim to be devoted to him. Do you place your hope in your job status? Do you place your hope in your economic status, in your community standing, your family reputation, the affection of another person, the future of your children, even your your hobbies or your political affiliation. We tend to, to place our hope and our peace in those things, and yet those things need to be in the proper perspective. And we need to live what we say we believe, trusting that Jesus is master over all those things, that he will provide and that you are first his before you are a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or son or daughter or employee or employer. We are first his. So verse 33 then kind of brings us back into the story. After this, this preparation, this local preparation, now we kind of step back out. And there's actually probably been a year that's gone by between verse 32 and verse 33. Remember in, in the beginning of the story, Midian, or Gideon was, was hiding in the wine press. The Midianites were here in his town. He's hiding from them. And now in verse 33, we read that the Midianites are again crossing over the Jordan. So this is the next season. And they're entering the land again. And verse 34 is perhaps the key to the entire story of Gideon. How does a hesitant coward accomplish what we see throughout the rest of chapter 7 and 8? The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Anything amazing that Gideon seems to do is the Spirit working through him. 
any amazing act at any point in the Bible, really. The hero is not the prophet or the judge or the king. The hero of every story in the Bible is God himself. He's the one moving forward with his plan of redemption for us. He uses his people, certainly, but God is the hero of the story. Praise God. So with this covering the spirit, Gideon quickly calls his kinsmen to himself, who, if we recall, just four verses prior, were ready to kill him. And yet they come out and they join him. And then he sends out messengers to Manasseh and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. And he, he draws together a force that we'll read later in chapter 7, amounts to 32,000 men ready to fight, come to his, to his side, ready to face the, the, Amal, the, uh, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east. But let's also recall that how had they been described? They were beyond number, like locusts, like sands of the seashore. How might Gideon have felt with his meager force of 32,000 against this countless force of Midianites? So as we get into verses 36 through, through, through 40, we'll see how he might have been feeling. The story of Gideon and his two fleeces is often used as a proof text for testing God to determine his will for our lives. The flannel board story that we often remember was told something like this. Gideon laid out his fleece, asking that it be wet or dry, seeking God's assurance that he would be successful in this endeavor, and thus should he pursue the endeavor. But the problem with that flannel board version of the story that's not what the text says. Before we dig into the text, though, I want to understand what it means to test God. Because Gideon certainly does ask for signs to test God. He says it. We could do a whole sermon series on testing God. But very briefly, we have to go back to Exodus 17.2. Israel was in the wilderness. They had just left Egypt. They found themselves without water and without food, and they grumbled against God and against Moses and Aaron. God, of course, provided for them. But Moses brings this up again at the beginning of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, 16, when he tells them, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And that theme repeats over and over and over again. In fact, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and the devil told him, throw yourself off this great height because the word, the word of God says that angels will, will not let you fall. You'll be protected. How does Jesus respond? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. So it's pretty clear we shouldn't test God. All the way back from Deuteronomy, affirmed by Christ as he faces temptation himself. But just to confuse the issue perhaps a little. The Apostle John encourages believers to have a healthy skepticism when it comes to religious claims. And he tells us to test the spirits to see whether they come from God. But essentially, he's telling us to compare the claims of those who say they are from Jesus with the actual words of Jesus. He tells us, don't be gullible. And as Paul might have told us later on, be like the Bereans. Search the scriptures to know if what you're being told is true this is not the same as testing God. We should know the scriptures and, and test what we are being told against the truth of God's word. We have the benefit of, of having the entire revealed word of God. 
Have you ever been tempted to make a bargain with God? All right, God, if you want me to take this job, have them call me in the next day. Then I'll know. God, if you want me to marry this person, let the next word out of their mouth begin with the letter G. <laughs> you know, you've, you've thought about doing something like that. You've wanted to at some point, probably haven't you? But these attempts to manipulate God completely understand how he reveals himself to us. His will is plainly given to us. His will for us is in his word. It's right here. Of course, that's, that's another sermon. But God's will, we often confuse his will in general with his will for our life specifically. Even his will for our life specifically is his will generally for all of us. That we should be sanctified, that we should pray without ceasing, that we should worship him and seek lives of godliness. Just as Gideon's test of the messenger in verse 17 was to prove the messenger's identity and authenticity, now we see Gideon concerned with confirming God's character. And before we judge him too quickly, even for that, we should consider his circumstances, that he had been raised in a Baal-worshipping culture. He had seen very little evidence of God's salvific work. Remember, it had been 40 years of peace since Deborah and Barak. He's faced with an, he's, he has this relatively puny army up against a massive invasion force. And so I'm, I'm prepared to cut him a little bit of slack here. But he needs some assurance that God will do what he has said he's done. He says, will you, he even addresses him, will you, God, Will you, Yahweh, save Israel by my hand as you have said? That's the question at stake. Gideon wants to know, can he trust God? Can he take God at his word? Would he do what he said he would do? He's heard the stories. Are they true? God once again displays his relentless grace toward Gideon and in a miraculous fashion responds to Gideon's request. The question, of course, is answered, yes, Gideon, you can trust me. In the response to Gideon's first test here, he, the text says, and it was so, verse 38. That phrase, it, it was so, is a, a fairly ra rare phrase in the Bible. There's one place where it's used over and over and over again, and it was so. And it reminds us that God's word is his action. In the very act of creating the universe, Genesis chapter 1, we read that God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, planting, yielding plants, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which their seed, and each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. God's word is his action. When he says something, it happens. And so we see that, that refrain again here. When Gideon asks, will this happen? The text tells us, and it was so.
So should we lay fleeces before the Lord to confirm even his character or his faithfulness? Is this passage proscriptive for us? Is this something that gives us behavior that we should follow? I think I've perhaps, that maybe it's a rhetorical question, but how can we know that we can trust the Lord if it's not through laying out fleeces before the Lord? We know we can trust Jesus because the tomb was empty on Easter morning. Jesus did exactly what he had promised. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He took the death that we deserved. He died in our place for our sins. He rose again on the third day as he had promised. He is faithful. You can trust him, but will you? Will you place your trust in this faithful, all-powerful, grace-giving, universe-sustaining, holy Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do worship you this morning. Lord, we are amazed at your holiness and your grace your relentless grace that pursues us before we ever did anything right, before we ever did anything that could deserve your forgiveness. Lord, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, your grace is relentless. Lord, you initiate when we are weak, when we are without hope. You sent forth your Son to be born of a virgin, to to live a perfect life, to die a horrific death, and to rise again in our stead, to prove to us that you are who you said you are and that you've done what you said you would do, that your promises are true and that we can trust you. Father, your holiness is beyond our comprehension. Lord, I pray that you would give us a renewed sense of your holiness. Give us a sense of awe and fear as we approach you. A renewed respect for who you are, for your name, for your glory, for your work in our midst, Lord. We are humbled that you would call us to join you in that work and that you would use us as your instruments for your purposes and for your glory. And Lord, we're we're thankful for your faithfulness for your assurance that we can trust you, for your assurance in Christ and through the Holy Spirit as our seal, as our guarantee that you love us and that you have done what we can never do for ourselves. And so Lord, this morning I pray that if there are any here that do not know you, that have not trusted you, Lord, that through your spirit and through your word that you would move in a mighty way and reveal yourself in a and help those who have not placed their trust in you to trust you, to place their hope, their eternal hope in you, Lord, for your glory and for our good, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.